hands up, you're out of luck And your back's up against the wall From Tunisia to Washington The people are calling no You're casting guns, you're cutting thugs Your lies on the TV None of that can save you now As your brain is swept away Get up, get up, your voices are needed Become, become the pulse of the revolution In the ranks of the masses rising Get up, get up, your voices are needed Become, become the pulse of the revolution In the ranks of the masses rising Greetings, everyone. This is a call to actions. It is podcast number 33 today. It is February 10th, 2021. Hope everyone is doing okay, doing fine, taking care of one another. Today, we're continuing on our nuclear investigations with an individual that held a a very important position in the United States nuclear industrial complex. This facility was in the city of Paducah, Kentucky, and the facility is known as the Paducah Gaseous Diffusion Plant. It was once ran by the corporation known as USEC, or the United States Enrichment Corporation. They led a toxic radioactive legacy behind them, a mass cover-up, though the truth is finally coming to the surface, thanks to people like this man. His name is Mike Driver. He is a former security guard and cascade operator at the Paducah Gaseous Diffusion Plant. We want to thank Mike for being here today. Thank you for your service, Mike. Welcome. Thank you. So let's just start from the very beginning. When did you start working at the Paducah Gaseous Diffusion Plant? Uh, August 8th, 14th, 1984, when I started out there. 1984. It seems like a time of uh, a lot of radioactivity, and we'll get into that. Um, Would you like to explain your positions at the plant, starting from the beginning? 1984, for another three years after that, I served in the uh, security department as a security officer with our our tactical uh identification was uh trt tactical response team was a big part of it but basically Mm -hmm. most of our duties were like any other kind of uh duties for someone else who was in a uh, high-risk area as a security officer so uh i have military background also had uh, law enforcement background before that so i was a shoe in for that job and uh, I was excited to go to work out there because it just seemed like, you know, I knew a lot of people there that were in my church, other people in the community that I knew. And everybody seemed to be really happy, satisfied, and uh, there was nothing to, help to to cause me to think there would be any any kind of, what's uh, uh, the word I'm looking for, uh, any harm to come to myself or any, anything that could happen. Uh, bad, uh, just uh, everything just seemed to be uh, very well researched. I'm talking about any potential problems or anything that might be in the plant, any potential exposures. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was told, no telling how many times, that uh, there was nothing in that plant that would hurt you, boy. Just going out there and do your job, and everything would be just fine. So that's exactly what I did. I trusted my 
supervisors. I trusted plant management. I trusted the Department of Energy. And uh, that pretty well backfired in my face so after a period of time. While I was uh, working as a security officer, we played on off shift, nighttime, when we were on a night shift or on the weekends. We played what we called war games. It was basically pretty much like going out and playing cowboys and Indians, only we were adults. We had military uh, gear. We had uh, uh, several different things that, that really added the uh, realism to what we did. We trained mm-hmm. the same as what a SWAT team would train. People see the SWAT teams on television and uh, uh, that was our training. That's what we did. We climbed all over the buildings. Uh, we run up the ladders on the side of the building, seven stories up to the roof and then lay down and uh, shoot blanks at each other. That kind of training, of course. But it was all very good. It was uh, somewhat similar to what I had done in, in the military. So, uh, uh, it, it not only was it an, an enjoyable job from that aspect, it was good. It was just good things to learn and and uh, good things to know. And if we ever did have a, a problem, then uh, you know we were working side by side, and, and our teams each each different shift had a uh, of course it was a, had its own team, and to be a part of that was uh, really it was it was kind of exciting. And it was uh, it was an honor as far as I was concerned. Now we would spend times out to, you know, there's a lot of drainage ditches and things like that in the plant, just for rain runoff, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we wind up, sometimes we'd be in some of the buildings, sometimes we'd be out in the in the fields, crawling through the ditches, crawling on top of the roofs, where we found out later that uh, the material, the radioactive material had been blown out of what they call the stacks, in other words, big pipes just went out the top of the buildings and uh, we wondered what that yellowish green stuff was on the buildings when we were laying around up there <laughs> playing our war games, but uh, everybody said, no, it's nothing to be worried about. There's, there's no radioactivity there. There's nothing happening. Come to find out, years later, all of those areas were roped off and taped off with uh, identification markers and the health physics technicians were, were hired by the hundreds. They came in and they found that the majority of the plant surfaces, whether it was inside a building or outside on the grounds, was pretty much uh, radioactive to some degree. What year or time frame was that when they came in and taped things off? Uh, probably, let me think, let me do my math here. I'm, I'm going to guess probably uh, around 1990, mm-hmm. maybe Maybe a little before, a little after, I'm not sure. Somewhere in that range, as best I can remember. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not kind of leading up to uh, USEC, as uh, USEC ran and operated the Paducah plant and the Portsmouth, Ohio plant. Uh, USEC and Russia's international uranium deal after the Cold War, megatons to megawatts, were they getting ready for um, some type of certification or some type of um, safety analysis and to make sure that they, they met certain safety milestones so that they could uh, start working with the Russians? I am not aware of any particular testing or preparation that you're talking about. That was, that was very secret. To- and they didn't even tell us as guards about it. I mean, you know, our, uh, they told us that our most dangerous uh, 
that's the word I'm looking for. A situation might be is for a disgruntled employee mm-hmm. to uh, get mad or you know have some type of uh, uh, mental episode and and come into the plant and kind of like a school shooting only be at the plant. You know, we we have somebody coming in like that. Mm-hmm. Our job was going to be to defend any parts of the plant where that somebody came in like that to do any harm. Mm-hmm. I didn't find out about the Russian cylinders until uh, I had uh, gone through training, become a first-class operator, cascade operator, and uh, worked in operations for a couple of three years. And I hated the shift work. I had uh, children at home, and uh, it was always messing up our schedule. And so uh, I had an opportunity to go on straight days if I worked on this uh, hazardous material handling crew and the nickname for that crew was called the powder crew. The pa- reason they call it the powder crew is because depleted uranium powder looks like salt. They call it the uh, green salt. Excuse me. The green salt was the, was the name. Yeah. And, and the green powder. And, uh, and it's actually, you know, a lot of our containers, the drums and things, this stuff was packed in years ago. Uh, the drums were corroded and leaking and everything. So we actually physically had the powder right there in our hands and we had to sweep it up off the floor many, many different times. So, um, mm-hmm. Most of the time when we first started out, we wouldn't put our gas mask on until we saw some of it airborne and then we would mask up real quick. And then uh, once we got it all cleaned up, then we'd take our mask off and go back to handling drums just like we had been before. That all changed with the years to come until it finally got to where the people were wearing in full containment suits and uh, gas masks all at the same time. But uh, when I when I volunteered to work that day shift, I moved out of the process buildings and went to a change house on the C360 building out right at the edge of the plant. That was the receiving and shipping area for the cylinders. All the cylinders came in the plant except the ones that came in by railroad. And even those, I think they had to come over across the plant and unload right there at that building. So we had showers and everything there where we'd go in and clean up at the end of the day uh, right before we got off from work and had our break room there. It was a very nice facility. It looked spotlessly clean. But uh, one of the problems, uh, I noticed the Russian stickers on the cylinders and so I started asking around mm-hmm. my co-workers who actually worked in that building because I worked out of that building that was not the building where I worked that's where I just changed clothes and ate lunch and uh, but uh, my co-workers told me said oh yes that uh, the United States Congress had struck a deal with Russia because a lot of their facilities especially Chernobyl of course was a big disaster and they just were not equipped to process enough of their own uranium to meet their needs as far as uh, 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 energy plants that used uranium. And uh, so the United States took cylinders that they had of uranium that uh, was contaminated in some form or fashion or was weak or whatever was going on. and. Uh, would ship them to us and our people would evaluate, you know, how they were doing, what, what they needed. Could they run this back through again? Uh, what, what situation 
you know, did we have with that? I didn't find out until actually years later that uh, the reason the Russian cylinders were contaminated was because that they had a huge amount of arsenic. Now, arsenic is injected into the system. This is supposed to be one of those big secrets, and then come hmm. to find out, mm-hmm. you can read about this. There's actually a book at the library that you can go and pick out that tells you all about this uh, process. But uh, the arsenic was to help uh, to clean. It's like a cleaner that's continually in the system. Mm-hmm. Russian cylinders had so much that uh, we, our people didn't want to handle them. They said it was too much to fool with. We could, you know, we get hurt too easily. Yeah. So they stockpiled them. But we already bought them from Russia. So we still, to complete our part of the transaction, no matter what condition the cylinders were in or what condition that the material was in, uh, we were selling uh, uranium products, uh, possibly, from what I heard, up to uh, fuel, uh, nuclear fuel level, as far as, as the richness of the, uh, of the product. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my terminology may not be exactly what uh, what you might hear from somebody else because, you know, we all work different sections of the plant. And, uh, yeah, that's fine. I have a little trouble remembering some of those <laughs> terms anyway. But mm-hmm. uh, so, we basically, what we got is we got the Russians' bad stuff that uh, was not usable, and we had to stockpile it. And uh, then the, uh, the good stuff that our plant had processed and other plants that like Oak Ridge had processed, uh, bringing it all the way up to fuel grade for the nuclear power plants in Russia. And we sent, from what I was told, we sent good stuff over there so the Russians would not have to build a new facility somewhere and try to do all of it on their own. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, us, we were helping them, they were helping us supposedly, and we were supposed to have been able to reprocess that material but that never happened, uh, at least it didn't while I was there. No. And I doubt that it has, I doubt that it has since I've been out there. Yeah. Did you ever witness the, the actual material when it was um, dumped into the system? Were there any, any types of, of cylinders that were just really, really, just really stood out as opposed to the other regular material that you process? Now the only thing that I that you can physically see is uh, the the big cylinders. You know, we're talking about a cylinder that's as big as a truck. So you know, the, the pretty good size, wow. maybe a, a, a small cargo van. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they have the brass valves, and the, the and the valves had brass caps on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the workers, and I think the majority, maybe all of the workers in that building are deceased now. I may be the only one that's left. But uh, most of my closest friends that worked in that area uh, have already passed away. And uh, some of them are quite a bit younger than I am. I'm 72 myself. But uh, they take those, those caps off of those valves, and there was a green liquid, probably about a half an ounce, maybe a little more, mm-hmm. in the cap. Well, they thought, my coworkers thought that that was uh, water, and that the green part was just... Uh, from the contamination of uh, the brass, a reaction with the brass, and uh, of some sort, and uh, it was just, just you know green water, mm-hmm. and uh, they'd actually play around, and throw it on each other, 
you know, just just douse them <laughs> with a clothes with their, their coveralls yeah, on. Yeah, and man, and the management wouldn't um, wouldn't perform. Um, uh, corrective measures, <laughs> I guess that's what you would call it on, on the on you know people doing that or where well, where managers, was where was management? Well, the managers weren't out in the cylinder yards. The, the operators were out in cylinder yards doing the work. Yeah, uh, they're in three sixty area, mm-hmm. and uh, our supervisor. Uh, I mean, there was no reason for Sandy Walker was one of them. Really fine lady. I always thought the world of, and uh, it was Sandy who saw them uh, throwing this green liquid around and just, you know, being silly. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told them, she said, take a sample of that up to the lab over in uh, the main part of the, the plant yeah. and ask them to analyze it, tell us what that is. A couple of days later, they got results back. That green liquid was pure arsenic. Pure arsenic. Hmm. And where was this this valve located on the cylinder um, when it was the cylinder was uh, I assume was laying on its side uh, horizontal, and the valve would be on one of the ends. So the oh, yeah, up toward the top. They always had the valve was was up on the top mm-hmm. end of it. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm just thinking of how you know the different different chemicals and uh, radioactive elements would settle in the cylinder, like like Italian dressing. But uh, I, I would assume that that arsenic was radioactive because it was in contact with radioactive isotopes for a long time. You know, uh, at there's, no way, there's no way that it couldn't be right. uh, contaminated with the radiation. I mean, it, it was all part of the same yeah. mix that was in the container. Yeah, and okay, and, and this this Russian material was processed at Paducah, and then it was sent over to Portsmouth. And Portsmouth is a different story. Uh, we're going to talk about Paducah today. Um, okay. So this material was was processed at Paducah. Uh, we believe that it completely contaminated the Paducah system, as uh, we know that it was it was contaminated previously by spent nuclear fuel rods or uh, fuel rods for nuclear power plants that were used up and were contaminated with fission products like technetium ninety nine. Uh, cesium-137, and even transuranics uh, due to the, the neutron bombardment, uh, plutonium and neptunium. So the Paducah plant was completely contaminated with transuranics, fission products from outside sources. Um, and there were routine methods of discharging or federally regulated ways or sometimes even not even regulated ways of of discharging the stuff into local bodies of water and into the air do you know anything about those procedures um I don't know as as much firsthand as as probably I could uh, contribute here. Um, talking about releasing the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Releasing the atmosphere and yeah. drainage ditches, things like that. Yeah, into the atmosphere and uh, yeah, into the outfalls, drainage ditches. Yep. Okay. Uh, senior operator. Uh, 
I'd rather not mention his name right here uh, at that's, this time. That's Someone fine. Someone whom I respected very much, mm-hmm. uh, helped train me, and did a really good job. And he told me one time about uh, a process that was done. I can't tell you exactly what years it was done. I think it was back in the 70s at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe even the 60s. There was what we call the PEM program. as P-E-M which is an upgrade program, they found hmm. out that uh, that part of the equipment was stopping up. It was it was like when you got your toilet overloaded and it, and it started backing up and things weren't working right. So they decided to do a complete rebuild of the all the different uh, pieces of equipment in the plant. Yeah. And they, they pulled some certain kind of rods out, put new rods in. They, they had uh, special cleaning stuff that they used. I mean, all this was highly toxic stuff. A lot of people that worked on that project got sick. And uh, I don't know anything about the, the number of deaths, but I just do know that they, they had some problems at, at that time. That was early on, even before I was ever out there. But uh, my friend uh, told me something that really disturbed me. And he said that uh, he was a lieutenant in the guard department. Mm-hmm. And five nights a week, he there was a crew that was on night shift, only on night shift until their project ran out. Yeah. Uh, the process that was being done in the plant is the, the lower level of uranium that was less... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, lesser amount of activity, radioactivity in it. Yeah. We depleted uranium, basically what we're talking about, which that's a misnomer too. Yeah. And the, the, the uh, depleted uranium, as long as it was in the gas, it was a piping or the cylinders, it had to be under uh, you know, under pressure, it had to be con- contained. It was, it was a big, big, big problem. So they found out that there was a demand at that time, a lot of ships being built and for ballast in these ships, down in the hull of these ships, instead of putting in lead or some other material, because uranium is 1.7 times heavier than lead, then they would compress this powder. They actually pound it with a ram and as it pounded that powder, it would solidify into solid uranium. Then they would cut it according to the customer's uh, request. Mm-hmm. They would uh, they would cut it into certain types of cubes, and that would go into a new ship. And the the keel that runs from the very front to the very back, you know, it used to back when it was uh, wooden boats. Mm-hmm. It was like teak wood or some other wood that was the heaviest wood that they could come up with. Yeah. They wanted that extra weight in the bottom to make things more stable. So instead, they would just leave an open trough in the bottom and they would fill that trough from one end to the other and put a piece of uh, steel over the top of it and weld it in so it's completely encapsulated in the bottom of that ship. Most ships, in fact, probably dang near all the ships that are out there have that today. That was the number one product that I was aware of. Might have been something else, but that was the number one product. And uh, so the the process to go from the gas 
the powder to the solid block. There had to be handling that whenever it was changed from a gas to a powder, then that powder, that green salt we're talking about, was put in pretty much mostly in 55-gallon drums. And each drum weighed approximately 2,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. The, the crew that I volunteered to work on was an overpack crew. And what we did is we had forklifts with special attachments, and we would pick up those drums, 2,000 pounds, and slide them down inside of a 75-pound, 75-gallon uh, drum. Mm-hmm. And so you had a drum within a drum, and then we would wipe off the dust off the outside, seal it, clamp it shut, and then we set uh, 20, which each shipment was 20 drums to Carolina Metals, where it was manufactured into uranium ammunition. Depleted uranium ammunition. Yep. That's uh, what you hear hear about, um, was it Gulf War illness or Gulf War sickness? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It may still... All of my symptoms were basically the same as Gulf War syndrome. Mm. That makes sense, and it came directly from uh, Paducah, Kentucky. Yes, sir. Yes. Okay, so that is getting out. That's uh, contaminating soldiers overseas. The soldiers aren't being informed of... Um, the the transuranic contamination in the depleted uranium that they're exposed to uh, because they're a soldier they, they're not a nuclear physicist necessarily um, so the soldiers are being contaminated overseas um, though we believe that the environment and the surrounding population is being contaminated as well how would the surrounding community be be con- contaminated radioactively. That goes back to the PEM program, the P-E-M mm-hmm. program we was talking about. Yeah. It's based from, from uh, someone and uh, my wife's father who passed away uh, from the same symptoms that, that I've had and, and other sick people have had. Yeah. And he, he saw it, he knew it, that basically what they did, in order to take a a, a unit, maybe we call it a, a cell uh, mm. stage. In order to take a stage yeah. and clean it up, because you know the stage is as big as my living room. I'm sitting here, and it's a big, huge drum-like apparatus, but it's just full of all kinds of metal things which uh, <clears throat> separate the the weight. It goes by the weight, the atomic weight of the U-235 and the U-237. So uh, one goes one way, the other goes the other way, but it's only like a point, point zero one percent separation for each stage. So at each stage, it's it's going to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage, and there's a recycling type of apparatus going on so that the the, uh, <coughs> the depleted uranium, which that's a misnomer because it's not really. Radioactivity is not going away, and a lot of yeah. people think that. They think, oh, you know, it's, it's fine. It's not. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in order to clean up all that equipment during the PIM program, they it took about three, sometimes four days, for them to be able to get all of the uranium uh the uranium and anything else that was in there they could get everything out 
It was a three to four day operation for each one of those stages. So they decided that they could speed things up tremendously. And what they would do is they would evacuate, which means pull a vacuum on that one particular stage they're working with, put all the uranium, everything, all that they could get out of it down to just a minor trace, which took about a, a day to do that. And then the rest of it, at uh, two or three o'clock in the morning, they would just open a valve and bend the rest of it to the atmosphere. Just this, just this target straight out into the air. Yes, sir. Now the idea was that people were at home in their beds asleep. There wasn't anybody out in the middle of the night like that. So they weighed the uh, risk factor and as far as the company was concerned, there was there was no risk factor. It was all going to blow away. The breeze would just take it away, and and uh, it would just disappear. That'd be it. But uh, it wasn't because that's why the neighbors who live close to the plant uh, they have found excessive amounts of uh, radioactive material on their property, in their property, in their houses, on the roofs. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of individuals have gone and, and done research and checked, you know, tried to find out more and more information like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Before I forget it, I want to mention one family. The family that saved my life is the English family. Have you heard of them? The English family? I, well, I went to school with some Englishes. Dean English or Tony English? Mm, not sure about them. Though um, it may be part of the same family because uh, Paducah and Metropolis are just across the river from each other. <laughs> okay, well, Dean English uh, is the youngest of the, of the, uh, the children. Uh, his older brother is Tony. Tony is the one, uh, he is a, um, uh, what's it called, honey? A taxidermist. Oh. And uh, I had a little project for him to do, and I went over to see him, and he, I told him, I said, I missed the first appointment. I said, I'm sorry, man, my memory's so bad, I keep forgetting things. And uh, he said, that's all right. And he said, uh, did you used to work at the plant here? And I said, yes, I did, because their property is right off the northeast corner of the Paducah Gas Distribution Plant. Ooh, okay. And I, did, I said, yes, I said, I, I did work there. And he said, you said you're sick? And I said, yeah, I'm sick, but I don't know what's wrong. I said, I can't find a doctor that, uh, that'll that help me and, and uh, give me a diagnosis, a proper diagnosis. I said, these doctors in Paducah, so they just look at me and shake their head, send me down the road. I said, I'm so tired of going to doctors and everybody just not knowing anything that's going on. He said, well, tell me what your symptoms are. So I started to tell him the primary symptoms, which is short-term memory loss, uh, I, I developed the back, some back problems, uh, balance problems, and, I, and about that time he stepped in and he named off about five or six more symptoms, a couple of them that I didn't realize I had until he mentioned them. I said, Tony, how'd you know that? He said, Mike, he said, you got heavy metal poisoning. He said, our whole family's got it. He said, every one of us are sick. Yeah. Especially his younger brother, Dean. So I highly recommend that you talk with them sometime. I think uh, I haven't seen them for several years, but still, they always did everything they could to uh, to help us. Uh, the father, uh, Ray, Ray English, corresponded, tried to correspond with Mitch McConnell, 
and uh, several other people, and uh, he corresponded with them, but all they did is just look the other way, and nobody ever gave him any help, and he passed away from uh, symptoms of multiple heavy metal sporting. Sorry. And, uh, and then Dean, they, they took Dean out of school. They said that he thought they had him had some other kind of uh, mental problems, and they wound up giving him more heavy metals to treat the... <laughs> It made him worse, wow. so that's yeah. another story. But to yeah. look them up. The, uh, you, said, you said the, just real quick, uh, you can sure. get, um, catch up here in a Keep second. Keep on track, son. I told you, I'll chase rabbits. <laughs> um, the, the northeast side of the plant, there there's a creek that runs through uh, through the northeast side of the Paducah Gas Diffusion Plant, known as uh, Little, Little Bayou Creek. Yes, sir. And Little Bayou Creek, according to Paducah Gaseous Diffusion Plant's own documents, is mostly, mostly contains liquid discharges from the plant. Either from stormwater that's ran, that's, uh, ran across the cylinder yard and became radioactively contaminated, uh, Etc. Though that creek, and I, I was shocked when I read that, that that creek was mostly consisted of runoff or drainage from the actual plant, and kids would play in that creek. Do you do you suspect that uh, your friend Mr. English's kids uh, could have potentially played in that creek or could have been exposed? Absolutely, Absolutely. yes. I, I talked to him with about with him about that many times. Uh, Dean was the youngest. Yeah, uh, C. Ray was a game warden. He he was over the hunting area all around there, mm-hmm. the state mm-hmm. state officer. Yeah. And uh, Dean would ride four wheelers, and he, he used to go back and play cowboys and Indians with his with his friends, and yeah. just go all over those woods back in there. And crossing that creek, he he went across it many times. Now, Ray English told me the story that I think I should share with you so that you understand this. Yes, please do. That creek, evidently the plant was in the process of draining something and just dumping it down the creek, letting it go on where it was going to go. Yeah. And uh, one of one of Ray English's uh, best friends loved a rabbit hunt. And he had his favorite beagle out one day and he was working that area around that little woods and around that creek. And he said he got to the, to the creek and the beagle just jumped off uh, into the creek. He, he caused scent, so he was he was yelling and carrying on like dogs do. Mm-hmm. And the dog came up the other side of the creek. Well, his friend was wearing hip waders, or no, he's wearing uh, chest waders, so he knew he could, you know, step off into something in there. And uh, so he stepped across the creek, stepped in it a couple steps, and then back out the other side. And he's watching this dog go ahead of him. And he said it was just like a, something you see on television because each step that that dog took, he moved a little bit slower. Hmm. And after he went about 20 yards, the dog just laid down. And the gentleman, he didn't know what was going on. He just looked at him. He walked up, called his name. The dog didn't move. Mm-hmm. Reached down, took his boot, and nudged at the dog, and his skin fell off. What? I've never heard anything like that. I I believe you, but that that is intense. 
the material that was being drained, I tell you right now, and I'm, they may arrest me for telling you this, but I don't think any of that stuff anymore is actually secret. They just want us to think it was secret. The trichloroethylene it was the one of the purifiers that was used. When I say purifier, it's supposed to, you know, clean everything else up so that the mm-hmm. everything the plant still need to be working. I, I don't I don't have any fear anymore, man. Like I said, I'm 72. I'm not afraid of them. So <laughs> let it roll. Yeah. Well, that's about time. Welcome to 2021. Um, th- that that's pretty intense. Um, yes. Yeah, I I had been a little little weary of uh, Little Bayou Creek. You know, being from Metropolis, Illinois, right across the river from Paducah, Kentucky. Um, I, I don't really know too much about Paducah, though I, I do know that the groundwater is is con- completely contaminated. And I believe the aquifer that, I believe it's the Mississippian sandstone aquifer, Mississippian, is contaminated with technetium 99 and trichloroethylene. And of of course, um, you know, technetium 99 is water soluble, so it travels with water. But also uranium 234, 235, and 238 are water soluble as well. So they travel with water as well when they can. Um, the Mississippian aquifer beneath the Paducah gaseous diffusion plant that's radioactive, I believe, I'm still working on, on these pieces, but I, I believe is the source of drinking water for the city of Metropolis. And I, I believe that the source of drinking water for the city of Paducah is the Ohio River. And, yes. and conveniently, Paducah, radioactively contaminated Metropolis's drinking water source, and the Metropolis Honeywell uranium conversion facility, of course, routinely uh, discharged into the Ohio River via their outfalls, thus contaminating Paducah's drinking water sources. I don't. I don't think the water treatment plants in either city have the technology or um, say water filtration tools to filter out radiation. I don't think so. Um, but w- with that aside, okay, so now we're still talking about the intentional say off-site contamination there was one thing one other thing I wanted to talk about we've been chatting back and forth for the past couple of days regarding this and I just want to hear it from your own voice there something else happened with the the night shift or the midnight shift would you like to explain that I'll be glad to this process that we keep going back to the the, uh, uh, the green salts, depleted uranium, green salts is a nickname for it, it's not an official name. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is uh, depleted uranium, it is converted from a gas to a powder, and uh, the powder looks very much like table salts, like a real fine table salt. Mm-hmm. It's, actually, it's actually very beautiful, it's just an iridescent green color, and uh, it's extremely heavy, as I mentioned before, 1.7 times heavier than lead. 
Yeah. And uh, this process went in uh, the, at the Paducah gas diffusion plant. The tails material, which is the depleted uranium in the yellow cake form, uh, was processed. It went to building 340, I believe was the number of the building. Mm-hmm. And there it was processed from the gaseous state into a powder state so it could be in containers that didn't have to be totally sealed, like the cylinders had to be totally sealed. So the 55-gallon drums of powder have the, uh, the green salt in them, as I mentioned before. Now, during this process, the building that, uh, that did this process was about five stories high, and it had certain levels. It's kind of like, you know, whenever they, uh, they take raw oil uh, from the oil wells and they, they put it in these machines, and depending on how far up or down it goes, determines... Uh, your, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Your gasoline, your, uh, oh, the, the, octane, your octane levels, and whether or not you get kerosene or gasoline, in other words. Okay, yeah. Well, the same principle applies to, to what happens with this powder. Mm-hmm. So, as it, as it kind of cooks off the top, there's a material called slag. The slag is the impurities most of the impurities that would be found in there and it's kind of like uh, if you've ever seen a smelter this this thing is like an enclosed smelter yeah. uh, a smelter you, you, you put whatever you want to melt in there if it's gold or silver or lead or whatever this you're, and any impurities there cooks to the top you scrape that off and you throw it away and these impurities could possibly contain plutonium and neptunium potentially well, probably absolutely Okay. Okay, go on. Okay, so after they they pile all this stuff up in a certain part of the building, and they got so much of it, and every day they were processing so much and and getting all this slag material left over, they they needed some place to put it, something to do. They buried lots of it all around the plants and the surrounding area there, Mm -hmm. and uh, finally they just didn't have enough place to do it. Yeah, yeah. So they put together another two-man crew, secret crew. They had two dump trucks and a large backhoe. And during the day, the regular workers, the Rondacea, would load this slag material to fill up those two dump trucks. Then at night, at midnight, this special two-man crew would come in five nights a week, and uh, they would... uh, they would come once once they got ready they would call in one of the guards the lieutenant in the guard department would come back and uh unlock the gate and let them out the back gate of the plant and they would drive for approximately two hours in whatever direction they decided to go yeah there was never documented there are no records except word of mouth like i'm telling you i got this though gonna find out i actually got part of this information from my uncle who was one of the loaders during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I said, my, my father-in-law, who's passed away from uh, heavy metals poisoning, mis- misdiagnosed, uh, he knew about it. So hmm. it wasn't a big secret within the plant. Everybody knew about it, but it's just one of those things where you just didn't talk about. If you liked the job, you wanted to keep it. You just didn't mention it. Yeah. And uh, so they would load up, they would go drive anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours away from the plant, different direction every day, 
they would look for a farmer's field that had been recently plowed or some otherwise been disturbed so that they could uh, slip in there in the middle of the night, use that backhoe, dig as deep a hole as they could deep it, they'd dig it, and then take those two dump trucks full of slag and dump them in the hole, cover it up, pack it down as best they could, level it off, and then come back to the plant. Radioactive slag. Yes, sir. I assume they didn't keep any log books on, on this type of procedure. I was told by one of the men, I was told by that, uh, that person that worked in the guard department, that lieutenant, I was told face to face that uh, there were no records, they didn't want any records, that uh, this was something that was done totally, you know, behind the scenes and just hmm. nobody supposed to know about it. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've never heard anything like that before. So let, let's open up that case. Um, is there, we, we just have a few more minutes. I just want to ask a couple more questions. Sure. Do we know who the plant manager is or, or was at the time of these illegal midnight radioactive offsite dumpings? Well, that was back when uh, carbide or Martin Marietta or Lockheed Martin, one of those, uh, I think it was, it was during the carbide time. Mm -hmm. Carbide was, they were the first and the longest running managers of the plant. Yeah. So if I give you a name, it may not be accurate. I wouldn't want to do that, but he did live next door to me. Okay. Is there anyone, is there anyone alive currently that would know any more information on this? Or are you the only surviving person who knows about this that that can talk about it i really don't know i've told as many people as i felt like i could safely tell uh over the years mm -hmm. but as far as other people that would know we, you know we're talking about people who would be in their mid to late 80s 90s even maybe 100 years old but, yeah uh i mean you know just like one guy said <clears throat> one night we were working on midnight shift. Uh, one of the older workers had, had, had just retired just a few months before that and he passed away. And uh, my other friend turned around and he said, yeah, carbiders don't have a good track record when it comes to staying alive after we retire. My dad is the better home. Yeah. What was that? Her father, my, my wife's father, my father-in-law said that same thing. Multiple times. His attitude was he knew that he was handling stuff. He knew he was being exposed to different things that he shouldn't be exposed to. But he made a really good living for his family. So his idea was to tough it out as long as he could. When it was time was up, it was up. Yeah. And that, that seems to be, you know, kind of the mindset, um, yes. the common mindset. Um, as one last question. Approximately, if you had to guess, how many times were these impurities, quote, slag, which were from uranium processing, and impurities, knowing Department of Energy, are radioactive contaminants that are not supposed to be at the plant. And in the case of Paducah, those contaminants would be, again, Plutonium, Neptunium, 
americium, transuranics and fission products, technetium 99. Um, how many times did this occur? It occurred enough times in the Paducah plant that whenever, you see they stored all this powder. They didn't have a market for it for a long time. And when I went on to the powder crew and actually became the, the team leader for the powder crew, mm -hmm. uh, we had already, they had already uh, all the way probably 75, 80% of it. But the original count was over 30,000 55 gallon drops. Over 30. So enough slag to cover the top of all of those drops. I would say probably, just guessing, I would say probably three or four years that it, that it went on. I might be wrong, but uh, it went on for a long time. Mm -hmm. Every every night. Um, five nights a week is what I was told. So, five nights a week. Okay, yeah, that was uh, during operating hours, maybe. <laughs> no. um, so, that would be hundreds at least hundreds of times at least and that would be tens of thousands of pounds of impurities you're right just dumped buried out. secretly buried yeah buried in some farmer's field um an assorted variety of farmer's fields or very inconspicuous places exactly mm. All right. Well, we're going to look into this more, and hopefully, there there are some more more clues that'll lead us to some more answers on this. But Mike Driver, I well, thank you for your service to truth and justice, and hanging in there for so long. Uh, you're a fighter. You know, we're in this together, and you know you can take comfort knowing that there are younger generations that are involved in this, and we're going to do what we can. Uh, to bring truth and justice as well. So, Mike Driver, if, if you have any anything else to say before we head off of this podcast episode, you can say. No, I just let you know I appreciate what you're doing. It's uh, it's been very difficult to get people to stand up, step up, and uh, you know try to fight for us and get the public to understand. You know I, uh, what the Department of Labor or uh, government pays us as far as compensation is not very much it's it's pretty ridiculous but uh i would just soon do without any compensation and see people live yeah if all possible uh you did mention uh the groundwater is something i was going to touch on mm -hmm. yeah uh, my foster brother was uh, the lead honcho on testing the water out there for about three or four years he has heart problems now and he's got other health issues so uh, we might uh, talk with him sometime. Okay, yeah, just pass the message along and uh, we'll stay in touch on that. All right, brother. Awesome. Mike, it's been an honor. Let's talk soon. All right. All right, God bless. Take care. You too, brother. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Thank you, sir.